Presented by Trader Joe's. I'm Stuart Mandel, joined as always by Bruce Feldman. Bruce, we spent months analyzing, debating, worrying who the final four were going to be. And then, of course, everything broke right. The committee had it easy. No controversy this year, other than maybe if you disagree with who they had number one versus number two. Uh, LSU versus Oklahoma in the Peach Bowl. Ohio State versus Clemson in the Fiesta Bowl. I'm excited. I really am. I, I, I think this is the most compelling set of semifinals since the first year uh, when, first of all, we were all curious to see what this would look like, but it was also Marcus Mariota versus Winston, Jameis Winston, and Saban versus Urban Meyer. Uh, now, obviously, I think we're more intrigued by Clemson, Ohio State. Uh, Ohio, Oklahoma, uh, LSU is, I think, an 11-point spread. But uh, you were there for the LSU-Georgia game, which turned out to be, I think, uh, well, you tell me. I and mean, we went into it saying, it. Can, is, this, is this Georgia defense the one that's going to slow down LSU? And then they Burrow went and did what, what he always does. Like, what was I like to see in person? Yeah, so I spent the last week around LSU. Uh, not long after taping the podcast, I flew to Baton Rouge and spent, the, spent a few days there and then flew up to Atlanta. They flew up on on uh, Thursday and flew, I flew up shortly thereafter and so was in a lot of their meetings and um, it's it's an interesting mix because it's a team that is totally locked in yet they're pretty loose Because and I really think what it comes back to is uh, this is a really confident team and it certainly helps because they have Joe Burrow who's playing better than any quarterback in college football right now uh, and you know, we talked about this what I'm about to say in, in a, about a month ago now and it was after they had a really bad half against Ole Miss on the road and gave up a lot of rushing yards. Um, their defense is, is not a great defense, but it's definitely better than I think people were making it out to be. Uh, what happened was Grant Delpit was playing with a high ankle sprain, and I think they had some other guys who were banged up, and they were coming off the Alabama week, and I think there was probably a little bit of hangover for some of the some of the guys on their team. But... No one's ever gotten close to them really this year. I mean, being at that game, uh, and I'm going to have a story about uh, my week there and the kind of a countdown to this game on The Athletic probably later in the week, and I think there'll be some interesting stuff, and I don't want to give away some of that here. But, like, I my pick was that it was going to be within the spread, and by the time we got to Saturday morning, I was like, the spread could be two touchdowns here. I don't think Georgia can stay with this team. And it had nothing to do with what Georgia's offense was going to be like. It was going to be like, I'm actually surprised LSU didn't score in the 40s. And they probably could have if they didn't slow down. Also, Terrace Marshall dropped what would have been a 70-yard touchdown pass. I mean, the level Joe Burrow is operating this offense is really remarkable. And I just think that it's not just him. I mean, Clyde Edwards-Elair is a really big problem for for defenses because he's so good out of the backfield and their receivers are really really good um it just i think it's just the confidence that's in this team right now i came away thinking that this is this is the this is the best team i've seen this year and i saw 
Ohio State play. Now I saw Ohio State play on a Friday night against a really horrible Northwestern team, but just it it feels almost like a pro team and how they're operating right now. And they're big and physical on the defensive line. I think they, you know, they completely dominated what was arguably one of the three best defenses in college football, and Georgia didn't have a chance. I mean, it was it was something to see from field level, and it was just like they could pretty much name the score they want to put on the scoreboard. Which is remarkable given, like you said, Georgia had a great defense all season. Uh, Brody Miller, our excellent LSU writer, his story from the game t- focused on how pretty much every week they would prepare for the defense they were going to see on tape and then the defense would come out and do something they haven't they never did before. Like Georgia for all its success this year did not think it could defend LSU with its, you know, regular scheme. So Kirby Smart chose to not pressure Burrow as much, drop more guys into coverage and so all that meant was he would have more time to figure out who he was going to throw to. And of course he had that you know, I think will end up being the, the first highlight on every Heisman reel where he escaped like Houdini, waited for Justin Jefferson to get open. He said after the game that was supposed to be a short hitch route, but when he had to scramble, uh, Jefferson just took off and, and Burrow knew where he was going to be. And uh, there, Georgia had no answers. Now, Georgia's offense is, is pitiful, and they weren't going to be able to keep up uh, in that game because of that. Uh, do you think... So we put up our Heisman. I, I'm not going to get into the Heisman race because we know people don't care. But he Heisman's drop hole, 51 voters. He got every single first place vote. I think it's possible he will break that record. Although uh, our producer, John Hayes, and I were looking into this before we came on the podcast. And OJ Simpson currently holds the record with 855 first place votes. And that was when there were a lot more voters. He might get the percentage, but not the votes. Right. The percentage is held by... Uh uh, I was going to uh Troy. You can't remember his last name. Yeah. <laughs> I know. I paused. I was like, who is Troy Woods and why is he coming to my <laughs> Troy Smith? And um, it was at 91 and change yep. uh, of the possible points. I think he is going to break that. And I don't I actually think if you don't have Joe Burrow on your top three, you shouldn't have a vote. I mean, that's it's one thing if you're like, oh, you know what? I'm going to put. You know, Derek Brown, the great Auburn defensive line, and make a statement there. Or you're going to put uh, Jonathan Taylor because you've been around Wisconsin, um, or you think you think Chase Young is that guy, and you put him on there. But if you don't have Joe Burrow in your top three, you really shouldn't be voting. Well, yeah, I mean, I think he'll be in everybody's top three, but I I, I do think that it's regionalized. There will be people in Oklahoma who vote for Jalen Hurts. There will be people in Ohio who vote for Justin Fields. It's not, so it's not a given that everybody's going to write him first place. What I was going to ask is, we talk a lot about the most dominant quarterbacks, the most dominant seasons. Cam Newton comes to mind. I think it's really hard to compare a passing quarterback, a, a straight-up passing quarterback with some of those dual-threat guys. But I would make the case that just pure passing, this is the greatest passing season a quarterback has ever had 4,715 yards 48 touchdowns six interceptions and and most notably he's on pace to break the all-time completion percentage record for a season 77.9 percent his lowest completion percentage in a game this year lowest was 71.1 and it's not like he's this is a bubble screen offense this is an attack you downfield offense 
and he's still going to break that record. That, to me, is the most remarkable thing of all. By the way, uh, you know, just as a pure passer, one thing that people should realize if they don't already know, Joe Burrow's a really good athlete, and he's really dangerous in the run game. It's not just him buying time. Like, they do a bunch of stuff with him with draws and different things. So the the aspect he brings with his legs, I think, makes him a lot different than some other guys who are like, oh, he's a, you know, we're seeing him as like, he's LSU's version of of tom brady or peyton manning i mean there's a lot more they do with him because he's so athletic and i just don't think people probably have given him enough credit but that's a problem for defenses and we saw early on before lsu blew the game open he he really did some big damage on them with some you know 10 12 14 yard runs i feel bad for oklahoma because they finally have a defense i mean by the end of this you know they they other than two you know long plays in the fourth quarter by that freshman quarterback for Baylor where I don't know what happened but coverage breakdowns whatever they actually had a phenomenal defensive game in that game and in the end this defense that was ranked in the 100s last year is now 26th and I don't give them any chance to slow down Burrow in that game. unless Burrow uh, eats too much on the awards banquet this week and comes in come shows up at that game really slow and out of shape um I just, I don't, and it's nothing against Oklahoma. I just don't think anybody but Ohio State and Clemson, who have, you know, phenomenal defenses full of athletes, can can hold up. Um, And it's not like they have more, you know, decidedly more phenomenal athletes on defense than Georgia. It's just that those teams also have an offense that can keep up. By the way, this was not a good year for the people who want to argue for an 18 playoff because. When the committee final rankings came out, Georgia was still number five. Like that was the closest team, Georgia. They by the end of the year they could barely complete a forward pass, and so uh, no, thank you. I don't need to see that team in a playoff. Um, I was at the Pac-12 title game, which now feels like which feels like it happened a month ago. It now. feels like it happened a month ago, and it feels like like we went into it kind of excited, like this game finally has playoff implications. And then, I don't know, first quarter, sometime in the first quarter, early second quarter, you realize this is not going to be Utah's night, and the Pac-12 is not going to go to the playoff. Uh, give credit to Oregon. They, uh, they, I feel like they saved their, their best game of the year, or one of their best games of the year for the, uh, for the Pac-12 championship game. C.J. Verdell went wild, over 200 yards, against a Utah defense that came in giving up 50, 53 or 54 rushing yards per game. He had more than that on one carry. Um, so this caused a lot of, you know, after the game, a lot of yet another year of the PAC 12 trying to figure out why can't we get a team in the playoff? I mean, it's kind of sad, really. Like they've, they've had the playoff for six years. Now they've been in it twice. I really feel like it gets to the end of the season and it's like, it's like, uh, the rest of the country is going to a big party and the West coast isn't invited. Um, what do you think about the, the theory that was being thrown out there that, well, if they had, if Oregon had just scheduled you know, a Sunbelt team instead of uh, instead of Auburn and been 12-1 and one right now instead of 11-2, and two, that they'd be in the playoff. Uh, you know, I mean, why them? I mean, look, if you would you have said the same thing? LSU didn't need to go to Texas. They could have scheduled uh, Texas State. I mean, what are we doing here? I get it. LSU is in, a, is in the SEC where you play eight conference games and Pac-12 is plays nine but 
I, I don't think you can look back at that way. I mean, to me, Oregon's in the playoff if they handle their business against Arizona State. They didn't. I mean, it's hard. It's hard to go through a schedule undefeated. It's almost as hard to go through where you only you don't, don't have your A game one or two weeks. You still got to find a way to win. They didn't. I mean, I think Oregon is the most talented team in the conference right now, but they stumbled a couple times and they sputtered, and, and that's on them to to play better. I mean, the idea of saying, well, you didn't schedule – you know that I mean they were they were handling Auburn pretty well in the first half and then they just kind of looked like they ran out of gas. I think that there's something to the fact that it's, there's no question that Pac-12 put, makes it harder on themselves by playing nine conference games and a conference title game and their teams usually schedule pretty well out of conference. But I would just say that the best thing they could do to get in the playoff is have better teams. It just whether Oregon played Auburn or not, they are not on the same level as certainly those top three. Um, I don't know that they would have won an argument against Oklahoma, even if they, they – because, frankly, in that case, if they played three nobodies, they would probably have Baylor's resume. Um, they would they would have been they – they would not have gone into it feeling sorry. They probably would have finished number five instead of number six. They just need to produce better teams. They It's been a while now. Now – People have short memories. You know what? Just just to nitpick a little of this, I'm actually surprised they didn't finish five for whatever it's worth. I agree. I mean, the last thing we saw of them was them was them whipping a good Utah team. The last thing we saw of Georgia, who, by the way, lost to a terrible South Carolina team, was them getting blown out of basically their own building. I mean, that, that, that Mercedes-Benz was about 75% Georgia fans, and it was almost all those people almost left by the end <laughs> of the third quarter. So how they got, I mean, again, this really doesn't matter, I guess, who's fifth and who's sixth, but that surprised me that Oregon wasn't there. I get it. They lost to Arizona State. They had two losses, but in retrospect, I, I mean, I don't know. Remember, I, I remember the number five put... team also lost to a four and eight team. So I agree with that. I think what it was interesting for, for listening to Rob Mullen's comments when people would ask him about various teams, they pretty... Yeah, you know, leading into that week, they were they were pumping up Utah, even though Utah had no top twenty five wins. They up until the Iron Bowl, they were pumping up Alabama, even though they had no top twenty five wins. But once it came down to the final rankings, they pretty much went pretty stuck pretty rigidly to how many top twenty five teams did you beat, and Georgia beat three of them. Uh, that's why Wisconsin is still ahead of Penn State. They they pretty much went in order of who had the best wins or the most good wins. Because let's be honest, Alabama, say what you want about their schedule. Do you think there are 12 teams in college football better than Alabama this year? Probably not. I don't think it's a slam dunk, Stu. I really don't. I I, I think that I, I would take them over several of the teams above them, but I can't justify it based on resume. So they uh, they they stuck pretty rigidly. So at the end of the day, you know, I don't really have a strong opinion one way or the other whether LSU or Ohio State should have been number one, but it certainly matters. You know, this is now the difference between uh, LSU gets to play Oklahoma instead of Clemson. Ohio State has to play Clemson. And I, I made a joke on Twitter that for all this consternation, everybody's trying to avoid the three seed. Maybe the three seed should be the one seed. Are you surprised at all that Clemson is actually the Vegas favorite against Ohio State? No, I'm not actually. Um, Clemson, 
it's proven at this point on a big stage. I think that definitely counts for something. And look, I think last week was the first time I think people looked at Ohio State and seeing them a little little vulnerable, quite honestly. When you looked and saw they were down 21-7 to against Wisconsin. They battled back, but if you looked at Wisconsin, it looked like they were just sputtering all over the place, couldn't complete a pass, and credit to, uh, credit to Ohio State for, for rallying. But it was a little bit like, you know, the scene from Predator where you see some blood. I mean, people are starting to talk about, oh, this might be one of the greatest the greatest Ohio State team that's ever been assembled. And there's a long way to go from there. So uh, it's not surprised. It's not a surprise to me. I mean, I think it feels like it's a toss-up game. But if you were asking me, and we have plenty of time to get into this, who are you going to pick in that game? Uh, no, you can't put me on the spot like that just yet. Okay. I got three. I still got time to figure that out. But the fact that it's a toss-up, uh, you know, it's 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 you can you can complain all you want about Clemson's schedule and how easy it was. They still absolutely dominated everybody they played. Virginia was the first team they they won that game sixty-two to seventeen. And as our our uh, writer Andy Bitter pointed out, Virginia, it's almost like they got a moral victory. They became the first team all season to to gain three hundred yards, not four hundred, not five hundred, three hundred yards on Clemson. Now. I think the notion is that they don't have that uh, four NFL guys defensive line that they had last year, and that maybe they, if they actually face a team that can match them up front, like Ohio State, you would think can, that they get exposed a little bit. But I don't know. I'm I'm not ready to dismiss by any means Isaiah Simmons that secondary, but also just if you watched any of the ACC game. It was a long time ago that everybody was worried, oh, what's wrong with Trevor Lawrence? He's throwing all these interceptions. Yeah, he is right back to being the guy that finds Justin Ross and finds T. Higgins. And, oh, by the way, they also have Travis Etienne. It's just a incredibly rare year to have. I think if any of these, in any other season, if, if, if you only had one of these teams, it would they would be getting the, the, the almost annual, is this the greatest team of all time discussion? But you're not getting that because there's three of them. No. Well, this is a, well, it's, it's going to be fun. Uh, and plus, you have the Jalen Hurts factor on top of that going to his fourth uh, playoff. And, which, is, which is amazing. And he's 3-0 uh, and o against LSU. But this is a much different LSU, and this is a much different team he's with. I was thinking about how, you know, when the pairing got announced, how uh, one of the first kind of breakout Jalen Hurts moments was his freshman year, mm-hmm. that LSU-Alabama game that was nothing-nothing going into the fourth quarter, and he broke a long touchdown run. And here he is as a senior now at a different school, uh, in a completely different offense, playing LSU again. Who LSU has a completely different offense. This game will not be ten to nothing. You know what else is going to be really fun, by the way? Lane Kiffin in Oxford, Mississippi. Lane Kiffin in the S back in the SEC. As he said on ESPN, he uh, put the cover on the boat down there in Boca, and uh, off to Oxford. Where did you see the video of uh, uh, as he was getting off the plane? A guy had him take a picture with his baby, mm-hmm. and then as he handed the baby back, the guy goes, "By the way, make sure you get a burner phone." <laughs> did Lane? I don't know if Lane liked that or not. He did not like that. Yeah. What do you think? Uh, I got to say, I made a comment a week ago about the three SEC jobs that came open. I thought Ole Miss might be seen as the least appealing, but they ended up getting the biggest name coach by far of the three. How are you feeling about that? Is Lane Kiffin going to lead the Rebels to glory? I think it is very good for us in the media. I think it is uh, 
very good for Ole Miss fans because he will bring a ton of energy and enthusiasm, which he's already done. I think it's a little bit nervous for Greg Sankey, though. Um, Just because I'm not saying Lane is going to do anything really, really bad that's going to force a coaching change. I just think Lane needles people a lot. And he, you know, he found a way to do it. And maybe he said, you know, it's like to bring visibility to FAU, which was off the radar. But now he's definitely on the radar. He's in the middle of the party. You know, he's going to be in those SEC meetings. And, you know, there's sometimes Lane just can't help himself with, with saying stuff that gets under people's skin. I mean, there's going to be so much more visibility on him. And there's going to be more visibility where he goes out, what he does, everything. So it's not going to be boring. Um, you know, my read on the situation was once they realized they could not get Mike Norvell, and that was from everything I've heard was sewn up towards FSU earlier in the week. I think if you're Lane Kiffin, you look and say, all right, I think I can get Arkansas and here's Ole Miss. Who has, who do I have a better chance to get closer to winning seven or eight games at? And it's Ole Miss. I mean, Ole Miss is, is nowhere near as bad right now as Arkansas is. So I don't know. How do you think this ends? Give me a prediction three years from now. What do you think people are saying about this Lane Kiffin hired Ole Miss? Um, I think it'll be one of two things. Either he will have gotten them back to being one of, you know, he mentioned on, on uh, Reese Davis interviewed him during the playoff, during that interminable playoff show where you have to wait two and a half hours for them to announce the rest of the bowls. Uh, and he asked, Reese asked him all the right questions and he asked him why Ole Miss? Cause you know, he was up for Arkansas as well. And he said, cause when I was at Alabama, we lost to them twice. I, I've seen what they're capable of. So, in three years, either he will have them doing kind of what Hugh Freeze was doing there and, and making it difficult for the teams at the top of the division, or he'll have been fired for some massive scandal. Like, it's going to be one of the two, and, and I don't know that one is more or less likely than the other. Uh, Reese asked him, like, what's different since some of your earlier stints? Uh, he said, uh, maturity, more mature, more experienced. But does more matured, more experienced, to me, that just means he's not going to publicly accuse urban meyer of cheating this is a guy who only a i don't know month month and a half ago didn't like the calls that went against him in a game in conference usa and put up a a, a, a gif of blind referees on twitter and clearly of course got fined by his uh, by his conference more mature is a relative term there Okay, so any thoughts on any of the other hires that happened this weekend? Uh, rough weekend, by the way, for Kirby Smart all around. Not only did his team get whooped by LSU, basically in their own backyard, then he loses his top assistant, Sam Pittman, one of the best old line coaches in the country. He is headed to get the Arkansas job. Any thoughts on that one? Well, back to the podcast in a minute, but first a word from our sponsor, DoorDash. Your sweatpants are on for the day, but you're sick of microwave leftovers and frozen pizza? Enter DoorDash, restaurant-quality food with a living room dress code. DoorDash connects you with your favorite restaurants in your city. Ordering is easy. You open the DoorDash app, choose what you want to eat, and your food will be delivered to you wherever you are. And uh, I used it just the other night during on conference championship Saturday to get my favorite chicken kebab restaurant delivered to my door. Right now, our listeners can get $5 off their first order of $15 or more when you download the DoorDash app and enter promo code AUDIBLE. That's $5 off your first order when you download the DoorDash app from the App Store 
and enter promo code AUDIBLE. Don't forget, that's promo code AUDIBLE for $5 off your first order from DoorDash. My first thought is that my main takeaway from the coaching carousel this week, I, you're, we're going to have you answer the coaching carousel questions because I was knee-deep in trying to figure out, uh, I spent the weekend trying to figure out who's playing in the Birmingham Bowl and where should I rank that bowl relative to the Camellia Bowl in my bowl rankings column. I'm the bowl guy. You're the coaching carousel guy. I think we can agree on that. Right. Um, but I just had one observation I want to throw out there. Because of the early, I was always a proponent of the early signing period. I think there needed to be one. But as you know, there's always unintended consequences with this stuff. And I think it's unfortunate that, I mean, it turned out that Mike Norvell interviewed for the Florida State job during their bye week, like a month mm-hmm. earlier. Uh, I think it's unfortunate the guy is coaching his team in the conference championship game and Florida State's announcing the press conference. Uh, Lane Kiffin is coaching his team in the conference championship game and Ole Miss is sending out thinly veiled you know, t- tweets about the fact that the lane train is coming to Ole Miss. Uh, I think it's really unfortunate that the, the rush to get these guys in place because of early signing period is basically, um, m- you know, making it harder for, for it's taking some of the, the enjoyment away. I mean, this is a huge deal for Memphis football, a, a program that 10 years ago, Tommy West basically declared dead is going to a New Year's six ball. It's a really big deal. And during the game, it's, uh, uh, you know, so the story is already about his next job. What do you think about that? Uh, it's it is unfortunate. Look, I think when it came to the Mike Norvell FSU hire, as well as Lane Kiffin at uh, at Ole Miss, Mike Norvell. I think a lot of folks who cover uh, cover coaching news had a pretty good handle on that. Like 40, 48 hours before that it was good now it was almost like okay who wants to be the first person to say more than has you know it's like use those woge euphemisms around the draft florida state has zeroed in florida state has locked in is a top target there you know all those kinds of things that we end up doing where it's like yeah unless this thing falls through he's going to be the guy uh lane similar and i think when what happens is when a when another searching search is going on and that guy who is the top target is going something else. You kind of see where the dominoes are going. And I just think that's a reality of where we're at. I mean, one thing that struck me Sunday night with the Sam Pittman thing, because from what I had heard, uh, Arkansas really liked Eli Drinkwitz, who went 12-1 and in his first year at App State. But when he looked at Arkansas and was more tempted by Ole Miss, then all of a sudden the Arkansas search... Uh, started to go in a couple of different directions. They ended up with Sam Pittman. And I really think that, uh, I don't know this for sure, but I mean, if, if, if you look at the Arkansas search, I think that had a lot to do with what's happening at LSU right now. I think people look, and maybe even Lane Kiffin to some degree, I think the people who are making decisions, because everything is a copycat world in football, I'm not sure Arkansas is going to hire really a guy as good an O-line coach as he's been and as well-respected as he is in the business. He's never been a coordinator. He's never been like a guy who people normally think of as a, you know, and he's in his late 50s like Ed Ogeron. And I think they say, you know what? The players are going to play hard for him. Let's take a chance on this. I think in, if you are looking at some of these schools who hire guys who may have struggled the first time, and Lane certainly is one of them, I think you say, you know what? Guys can evolve, and now we're going to give him a chance even though we didn't like what we saw five years ago. And I think a lot of that has to do with what's gone on in LSU in the last couple of years, but especially this year. Well, 
I do think that, you know, I, I have doubts about Sam Pittman. Not that I, I'm not going to rule him out by any means, but it just seemed like that search got pretty desperate. They weren't able to get the kind of guys they wanted. Uh, I think um, Drinkowitz at Missouri is, is an interesting one because he just comes from such a different path. You know, I was joking with Andy Staples that once Lane Kiffin and, and Sam Pittman got hired, it's getting to the point where every, almost every coach in the SEC is either a Saban descendant or now, in the case of Sam Pittman, a descendant of a Saban descendant. But um, Eli Drinkwitz doesn't have any of those ties. Now he has ties to Malzahn, but, you know, not, not Saban. Um, but, you know, it's just – there. The, the coaching situation is just messed up is the best way I can put it. These schools pay these exorbitant amounts of money to buy out the coach. This That's part one. Now you have a huge decision to make. This is going to affect years of your program down the road. Pot, you know, Next you're going to spend God knows how much money on them. And it's just this frantic chase. Like we've got to have somebody by early signing period. We've got to have somebody by early signing period. And I don't know that they think it through all the way. Oh, this guy turned us down right on to the next one. Uh, and you end up making some bad hires that way. May, you know, maybe the, maybe Sam Pittman will prove me wrong and be the savior of Arkansas football. But like, it just feels like, hey, maybe pump the brakes and really think about this because there's a lot of guys out there, a lot of guys out there that would be a really good head coach if you took the time to kind of cast a wider net. Yeah, and towards that end, just to follow up on my point, uh, on Friday I was told by somebody that Billy Napier, who's had a really good first couple of years at Louisiana, was the rare exception, or I guess the exception, uh, who who wasn't engaging in any dialogue for the people who had some interest in him. And when I say that, in, I'm not even talking, not just not even going to interview. Like a lot of times guys who don't really have dialogue will at least talk for a little bit over the phone. He wasn't doing any of that. Brian Harson, I think, so, was, was the same, right? You know, yeah, and I don't know if it's a case of Brian Harson didn't even have any interest in the places that had interest him. I don't know the specifics on that part of it, but yeah, I mean, we'd reported on both of those this week for the Athletic that neither one of those guys really was engaging in it. But everything I'd heard from from uh, from uh, search people about what was going on with Napier wasn't even like it, like even having a like acknowledging it. It was just almost like. You know, bleep you. I'm not. I'm not. I'm. I've got to coach the team, and that's it. You want to talk to me? You can talk to me after Saturday. So, before we head off, let's go to the mailbag. As always, you can send your questions to theaudiblepod at gmail.com. This first one is from Greg Seelig in Brooklyn. So, Greg Seelig is a Dallas Cowboys fan. I'm trying to think about who his next coach will be. The last time they had a major success with a brash, commanding leader from the college ranks, miss you, JJ. Thinking through the options, I landed on Coach O at LSU. Would he be interested in leaving his dream job to try to restore the Cowboys to Super Bowl glory? Uh, I'm going to say no. I think this is the dream job that he has. Uh, I don't see him having any interest in, in the Cowboys at all. I just don't think that's on his radar. Any other current college coaches you think might end up as the head coach of the Dallas You know, I think, I think we up. talked about this on the podcast. I think we did. I know I talked about it somewhere. Daniel Jeremiah... Uh, a longtime NFL scout, now works for the NFL Network. They're, they're a draft expert and probably the best in the business of what he does. He had said, he had a prediction that Dan Mullen would be the guy Jerry Jones would zero in on. Uh, obviously, he coached Dak Prescott and helped really turn him into what he has become in the NFL. Uh, and what, what this, talking to NFL people, they think, you know, Jerry Jones' ego is sizable enough where it's like, 
Would he really want somebody else who would kind of rival him? I mean, that's ultimately what cost the Jimmy and Jerry relationship, whatever it was, 25 years ago to go south. So I don't know. I mean, I have no idea if Dan Mullen has any interest in coaching in the NFL, but that's certainly a huge stage. And so, again, that was Daniel's prediction. I don't, you know, I don't want to say that there's been anybody who, who covers this coaching search world on our end of it who has heard any of that speculation. But uh, I don't know. My guess is if the Dallas Cowboys called up Dan Mullen, he would, he would uh, run, run from Gainesville to Dallas if that's possible. That's just a hunch. I just think that he's he strikes me as the kind of guy who would who's a climber, who would want to show that he can he can do it at the highest level. Um, but yeah, you're right about Coach O. Like he he he's he's LSU. I mean, it's it's it really is the perfect marriage, and uh, it always puzzled me at the time why there was so much um, like so much panning of that hire you know after they initially tried to get Jimbo and Tom Herman because he just it's now what I have predicted a season like this no uh didn't know who Joe Brady was three years ago or Joe Burrow but you know it, it really is about as perfect a marriage you can get of coach and school Blaine just, from Virginia by the way just to finish up on that point I can't tell you I must have been like three different times we walked out on the balcony outside of his office where he just stood out and just kind of looked around and like, you know, there's the area where there's just over the practice field. Just, it was, I'm sitting out there going, wow, I wouldn't mind if I brought my jacket out here. And he's just like, Tiger Stadium's off to the right, his practice field's off to the left. And, you know, it's just different to him. I mean, I can't, like, I would be shocked if he, if he were to leave there for any NFL job. It just doesn't, just doesn't compute. This article you're going to have from all the access you got, I mean, this is, this is meat market uh, type material we're talking about here. So please make sure you're on the athletic this week for Bruce's article. If you haven't subscribed, you can subscribe at theathletic.com slash the audible for a discount. Um, also one more plug really quick, Andy Staples podcast, the Andy Staples show did something that to me is just like the perfect illustration of this, this great network we have. He had a show that went up on Sunday had interviews with all of our beat writers for the four playoff teams, Brody Miller for LSU, uh, Bill Landis for Ohio State, Grace Rayner for Clemson, and Jason Kersey from Oklahoma. So listen to that um, so you can get some insight from the people who are on the ground with those teams. Blaine from Virginia. Uh, pardon his language here. Blaine from Virginia. You see coaches piss away points in games by punting, so there's no guarantee they are behaving rationally off the field either. With all of the backroom analysts and advanced video editing technology, reading tendencies of opposing teams shouldn't take that long. Are you really productive when you go from working 50 hours to 80 hours? Are you doing it just for show to show your commitment to the career? By the way, this the subject of this email I should mention was coaching burnout in light of uh, Chris Peterson's news. Hmm. I don't know if that's a statement or a question. Well, I mean... I don't think he's wrong. You saw it up close just, this week. Yeah. yeah. Is there... I, I think is what, there, what you see, and I've had this, I had this conversation a lot this week uh, in Baton Rouge, where it's like this whole coaching at, attitude, a lot of it, it feels like it comes out of the Junction Boys. And it's so much is so much of that was how these guys were, were came up about harder, maybe not smarter. 
and it's taken a while. I mean, like this is a big, it's, it's not a secret anymore that that's a big key to what's changed in Baton Rouge. Yeah, I think that there's definitely truth to what he's saying, especially, I mean, there was a time when the coaches themselves, the assistant coaches probably, were literally the ones splicing up the film, right? Way back in the good old days. Now you have this army of people behind the scenes to arrange the recruiting visits and have the video ready to go. So when you sit down to evaluate recruits, you don't even have to press fast, press fast forward. It's already ready for you. And yet they're still working 100-hour weeks, you know? I would, I would think every college football coach could benefit from maybe spending some time with one of these um, efficiency experts. There are, you know, a lot of companies hire experts or uh, consultants to make sure things are run, running as efficiently as possible. Because I bet you would find a lot of guys who are just sitting around their offices because they think they're supposed to. Like, well, if I leave now, the coach is going to think I'm a slacker. Um, last one comes from Chris Vernarski. And it's funny that this is the question because earlier in the podcast, Bruce literally shut us down from talking about Alabama. Imagine if Alabama had beaten LSU and Tuscaloosa, but everything else that happened had stayed the same. Tua still dislocates his hip the following week against Mississippi State, and then Alabama loses a classic Iron Bowl with a backup QB. What does the committee do with this? I think they'd be in, don't you? Yeah, I think they'd, I think they would be in, but they didn't. So... <laughs> Um, well, also, I, I he's forgetting Alabama before. You're I, just sick of talking about Alabama. Them. I'm not sick of talking about them, but like they've they've dominated the college football world. This is the one year where they they really haven't, and the way it ended, and it's like we should be talking about everybody else at this point. Okay, but that being said, I agree. But that being said, I did my ranking of the bowls one to thirty nine, and the Alabama Michigan Citrus Bowl I had behind only the playoff games and the Rose Bowl. How are you? Where? How interested are you? Scale one to ten. Oh, how interested are you? I'm in interested. I'm interested. You want to call it the Josh Gaddis Bowl? Call it whatever you want. I'm definitely interested. Jim Harbaugh versus versus Nick Saban. I mean, we have plenty of time to talk about the bowl specifically. That's as yeah. that's as juicy a Citrus Bowl matchup as I think you can get, which just Look tells you, you that. Fun. Very well done. So. <laughs> I didn't even intend that. Okay, as always, you can send your emails to theaudiblepod at gmail.com. We'll see you next time. If you enjoy the Audible, please subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts. Leave us a review and a rating if you could, too. It helps us get the word out. Our producer is John Hayes. Our theme song is Dangerous by Kevin and the Octaves. You can download their music on Spotify or Apple Music. Follow me on Twitter at SLMandel. Follow Bruce at Bruce Feldman CFB. And if you're not yet a subscriber to The Athletic, what are you waiting for? You can get 40% off an annual subscription by using this link, theathletic.com slash theaudible. That's 40% off your subscription to The Athletic. Yeah.